Today is the day that we call not just Palm Sunday, but Jesus' triumphal entry, which I was given some consideration to that tag, his triumphal entry, which in just in a few days he was a bloody mess on a cross. But there are reasons, of course, that we call it the triumphal entry. So let's go in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 21 and read a few verses concerning this great event of which there's much to say and my message won't cover most of it. We would just simply accent certain portions of it. So once again, we can make application for our lives. Verse 1, Matthew chapter 21. The Bible says, And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem and were come to Bethphage, unto the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway ye shall find an ass tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them unto me. And if any man say aught unto you, ye shall say, The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send them. Verse 4 says, All this was done that it might be fulfilled. That's a key word in the New Testament, fulfilled. Which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee meek. And you could look at that word for a moment as well, because this is ironic that that word is used in what we're going to see Jesus do shortly after his arrival into Jerusalem. Let me read it again. Verse 5. Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee meek, and sitting upon an ass, and a colt, the foal of an ass. And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them and brought the ass and the colt and put on them their clothes and they set him thereon. And a very great multitude, notice the adjectives. It could have just said a multitude, which would certainly be a lot of people. And it could have said a great multitude, which would give us the impression, of course, that it's even larger crowd than just a multitude. But it says very great. So there's a lot of, lot of people greeting Jesus as he comes into Jerusalem with the ass and the colt. And a very great multitude, verse 8, spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees and strawed them in the way, put them down on the ground. And the multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he was come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and said unto them, It is written. And I want you to notice those words as well. It is written. Jesus used that phrase. The apostles, especially Paul, used that phrase. We know God through the book, through the Bible. Not simply with the Bible. We know God through the Bible. And said unto them, it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And verse 14 then says, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. When the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things, which means miraculous, the wonderful things that he did and the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were sore displeased and said unto them, Hearest thou what these say? 
And Jesus saith unto them, Yea, have ye never read out of the mouths of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise? And then verse 17 says, And he left them and went out of the city into Bethany and lodged there. And we'll stop there at verse 17. And you may remember that Bethany was the city where Lazarus, Martha, and Mary lived, a place of a great miracle in the resurrection from the dead with a man who had already been dead for four days. When we look at the Bible, and really this is the way you should read any book, there are two questions you should ask. The first is, why was this book written? The second question that you should ask is, why am I reading this book? I don't mean just the Bible, I mean any book. But when it comes to the Bible, those same questions are very legitimate. Number one, what is the purpose of the Bible? So a massive information. Then secondly, why am I reading it? So let me reiterate what I've already said twice, a third time. Yes, the preaching of the word is the most important part of any church service. Expounding on the verses, which I hope that we will be able to do that today. Explaining the intent and the meaning, and therefore the application to your life, my life, is obviously the intention. But preaching for the sake of preaching is not the intention of why God wrote the Bible. I remember a man, a pastor, who at the time was well known, he's passed away now, saying that he rather preached than eat. And what he meant was that he just really enjoyed preaching. Well, I could say the same of myself. I love to preach, I love to teach. But if I was simply in love with the art of preaching or teaching, that would be one thing, but I'm not. I do love to teach and I do love to preach, but my heart is squarely centered on how does this apply? When I read the Bible, as you know, I read the Bible for myself. Do I study for you? Well, of course, but I'm still reading for myself. How does this apply to me? Before I think about how this applies to you, I think about how does this apply to me? What do I need to do to line up with the principles and so on of the scriptures? Now, in introduction to this sermon, which I've simply called Save Now, which is what the word Hosanna means, either means, oh, save, or save now. This is what they were expecting, and this is what they wanted, but it's not what they got. Save now. But again, by way of introduction, I want to share with you some interesting information. But first, I want to read to you something you need to pay attention to so that you have the idea of why certain parts of the Bible are there. Let me read this to you. This quote comes from a book that's entitled, or titled, An Introduction to Traditional Logic, Classical Reasoning for Contemporary Minds, and the author is Scott Sullivan. And he writes in his book, in other words, knowledge and logic involve signification. To be intentional is to signify. Since our knowledge is always about things, whatever it is that we know should be significant of reality, which means that our instruments of knowledge are signs. Now, this is a book on logic, not on theology. A sign, now listen to this, this is what I want you to hear. A sign is that which represents something other than itself. Smoke is a sign of fire. Sirens are signs of an emergency. A red traffic light is a sign indicating a law to stop at an intersection. A morning frost is a sign that the evening was cool. And words are signs that refer to the concepts in our minds. Thus, 
We can see that signs are inherently intentional since the sign, quote, points away from itself to something else. A sign leads us to whatever the sign signifies, which we call the signatum. All signs represent their signatum. All I want you to hear from that quotation from Sullivan's book on logic is that signs point to something else. Signs are designed to point to something else. For example, in Mark chapter 16, we read, and these signs shall follow them that believe. And then we read about the laying on of hands, the casting out of the devil, speaking in tongues. We must understand that all signs point to something else. For example, if we were to be reading from the gospel according to John, the gospel according to John is what is known as well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as synoptic. They tell various angles of the same story, where John is unique, and chiefly in the respect that it outlines significant miracles that Jesus did as signs that point to this conclusion, which we find at the end of the Gospel of John. All these things were written, after he talks about the signs, all these things were written that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and believing have life, eternal life, in his name. That's why, I mean, John tells us, if you've read the last chapter first, this is why this book is written, so that you would believe on Jesus Christ and have eternal life or life through his name. So everything that goes up to the very last chapter, uh, similar to the book of Ecclesiastes, when Solomon apparently reflecting on his own life and the lives of other human beings and says, vanity of vanity, all is vanity, man in his best state. At the top of your game, such altogether vanity. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. He tells us at the end of Ecclesiastes, that's what this book is all about. That you're going to leave everything behind. Everything you have, you're leaving it behind. And you'll appear before God. And so John does the same. These things are written. Signs, according to Sullivan, are not an entity unto itself, it's designed to point to something else, whatever those signs may be. And so Jesus, of course, gives us many, many signs, but we must say that when he heals the sick, he has compassion on the sick. He's healing the sick because they're sick. But they are signs of who he is. They go to arrest Jesus, and they come back without him. And the religious leaders say, why didn't you bring him back? And this is the reason. They give. Not that they were more armed than the guards. He says, they say, no man ever spoke like this. They were taken back by the things that he said. When so much opposition came against Jesus, and he says, if you don't believe me by what I'm saying, believe me by the works that I've done. So we see very great multitudes following him here on what we call Palm Sunday. The signs point to something else. And so I find myself almost constantly looking at our world, which I remind you of so often, that are providing us with signs, that the events in themselves are not as important as what they represent. For example, in last week's news, since we were together last Sunday, between now and Sunday, this was one of the headlines, which reads this way. J.P. Morgan, large, large banking organization, J.P. Morgan to pilot payment services using palm or face recognition in the U.S. Now, if you're biblically literate, 
Right away, Revelation 13 comes to your mind. J.P. Morgan to pilot payment services using palm or face recognition in the U.S. And under that heading, it says, following this trial, the bank will offer this service to its larger base of U.S. merchant clients. In part, the article reads this way. According to Good, that's G-O-O-D-E, Good Intelligence, it's an organization, global biometric payments are expected to reach $5.8 trillion. And for those, and I've heard this before over the years, well, the coming of Christ is far away and there's all this type of thing, which we don't know how close and precisely, and we don't know how far away either because Jesus tells us these things. But it's interesting to read, and I'll read it again, that global biometric payments are expected to reach $5.8 trillion by 2026. So if my math is correct, that's only three years, that you'll be going into a store somewhere here in the United States, and whether you do or you don't sign up for this, you'll be seeing people just go like that, or scan their face, and payment will be made. When I'm reading this, my mind's already going beyond just using it for payment. Not just the book of the Revelation, which actually mentions buying or selling. I'm thinking of all this technology can be used for, and then in another article, they write these words. Imagine a world where anyone can turn up at an airport, buy a ticket, pass through security, and board a flight without even a smartphone or passport on them. That technology exists to make this futuristic vision a reality and payments are leading the charge. Starts with just, you could pay with your palm, you could pay with a scan of your, I mean, presumably it would be the retina, but the Bible names the forehead. So we see how this is developing. It sounds like fiction. It sounds like I'm reading from Orwell's book, 1984. It sounds like we're reading something that's fictional and it's happening now. And so we read in the book of the Revelation, chapter 13, beginning at verse 16, talking about this man we know as the Antichrist, though in that chapter of 13, he's uh, known as the beast, and, and there's a false prophet with him. He, the Antichrist, causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, free and slave, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that hath the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred, three score, and six. A score is twenty, three scores is sixty, so it's six, six, six. And we read Revelation, written two thousand years ago, and we read the news, as I said to you last week, they're just matching up nearly perfectly because they're signs of the times that you live in and that I live in. In other words, what I just read to you about J.P. Morgan and the technology that's there, it's not the sign that's as important as what it represents. And I might say that the sign of an antichrist system and the world government and all this that we've read about for years is not nearly as important as the coming of Christ. Amen. Because that's what this all represents. Amen. The coming of Jesus Christ, as you probably read this in social media, and I think it's pretty observant. People laughed at Noah building this ship when, as we understand, it had never rained ever. They laughed until it started to rain. 
And now we live in an age where you can read your Bible, turn to your news, and they match up again nearly perfectly. And they are signs pointing to something else. So I'll go back to what John says at the end of his gospel account. These things are written that you may believe on the name of the Son of God and have life through his name, eternal life. All of this is written, this is what John's saying. All of this is written that you would believe on the Son of God. And believing on the Son of God does not mean that you have Bible knowledge and do nothing with it. Never did Jesus just simply give out information without expecting a response one way or the other. Remember, not everyone believes. Some just, well, they crucified him. So signs are not an entity in itself. Now we can get, I'll use the word, caught up with earthquakes. And one of these Sundays, it won't be next, but I'm going to bring to you just a mass of information of what's going on in this world. I'm going to try to put it all, collate it, put it all together. I won't go into that now, just take up too much time. But we read about earthquakes and we read about famines, droughts, all of these things that we know, wars, rumors of wars. And sometimes we forget that that's just a sign. I mean, it's a real event and it's catastrophic or it's bad. You know, we pity people, but it's a sign representing something else. And I will come again. And I will come again and receive you unto myself. That's what all this represents. That's why we're here this morning. And I say this, I know I beat certain things literally to death and then beyond. But the purpose of my preaching or anybody's preaching is not to entertain, it's to inform. It's to persuade. It's to get a response. It's to say to you, as Jesus did, what is your decision? What will you do with this man? What will you do with Jesus? Because we're seeing the signs. I read to you just one headline in the area of biometrics. And some of you, of course, are informed of Elon Musk and a thousand other people, scientists, who are calling for a moratorium on any more research on artificial intelligence because they're concerned, as was Carl Sagan many years ago, that the technology can take us over like we see in sci-fi movies. And we've seen many movies like that where the robots or who, whatever, they're more intelligent than the people and they just dominate and the intelligence is out of control. This has become a real concern. Now, you say, Pastor, does it concern you? And my answer is no. Why? Because there's simply signs of something much larger, much bigger, much greater, whose name happens to be God. Amen. I will come again and receive you unto myself. So now we look into our Bibles, and I want you to look in Matthew chapter 21, where we just read these verses. And notice at verse 12, as Jesus comes into Jerusalem and the crowds are shouting and there's many children shouting. And when we get into the temple, we see it's primarily children. Hosanna, Hosanna, save now, son of David. They name his lineage. They're expecting the kingdom to be restored now. Finally, after all these years, these are Jewish people. But you see, God had a wider plan because he also includes Gentiles which is the majority of us here, and the majority that's in the church and has been for 2,000 years. The majority has been Gentiles. And the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee, at verse 11. 
Matthew chapter 21. And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. I told you before, if you look up at verse 5, it seems almost ironic that he's called meek, which he was. <laughs> but now... We see this scripture come to life between verse 5 and verse 12 that was given to us by, of course, the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul when he said, Behold the goodness and the severity of God. It just depends on where you stand with God. Behold the goodness and the severity of God. Jesus, on a rare occasion, displays great anger. We read in other parallel chapters, of which included is John. Jesus makes a chord a scourge, rather, of cords. So I'm picturing this as I'm reading it. I'm picturing Jesus making it there in front of everybody. A long whip, but the type you would see in 18th century mariner's law. He's making a scourge. That's why it's called a scourge. And he's coming in, and he is kicking tables over, and the coins are jingling on the stone of the temple. Birds are flying He's driving out the buyers, the sellers, and the animals. Now, just so you know, you say, what were they doing there? Why are they in the temple? Well, you have Jewish people traveling from all over the world for the Feast of the Passover. And they're not traveling with their sacrifices, such as a lamb. Could have been a turtle dove. It could have been many things. So they bought them at the temple. That in itself was legitimate but what happened was, as we see this thing, I'll use the word religion. We see this in religion. Man starts to convert God in traditions and in other things, such as avarice. And as we read again in the Apostle Peter, he says, the time will come, false teachers will come, and they will make merchandise out of you, promising you this and that. And the more you give, the more you get. And if you don't take notice, take notice. The only one who's really getting is the preacher. And some few people they bring up as a testimony, so everybody gets the impression this happens, and they don't take the time, I suppose, they don't take the time to look at their own lives to see it hasn't brought anything because it was given with the wrong motive. In any case, Jesus is kicking over the tables. He's not only casting out those that sell, he's casting out those that buy because what they started to do was to barter. In this holy place, they started to haggle. That's too much. I'm not paying that for that turtle dove. I'm not paying that much money. I'll give you this much. No, no, no. You mean to go back and forth. That's okay if you're doing it in a regular marketplace, but not in the house of God. And so Jesus comes in and he casts out these sellers and the buyers and the animals. He's asked in another place, by what authority do you do this? He says, I'll tell you about my authority. This is in John's gospel or John's account. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus being wise no doubt knew that some would misinterpret what he was saying as thinking he was talking about this temple. But the disciples remembered that he was talking about his body. You want to know who I am? I'm not a philosopher. He was a prophet, but more than a prophet. He is a king, but more than a king. He's God come in the flesh. Amen. And he says, you want to know who I am? You want to know about my authority? Kill me. All right, that's the translation. Kill me, I'll raise myself back up in three days. That's what we're going to celebrate next Sunday. And while I'm at it, just as a parenthetical statement, when we have all this theological debate that goes on among Christians about the Sabbath, there's no doubt in the Old Testament that the seventh day is the Sabbath. Old Covenant Sabbath 
But if you look in the book of Acts and other places, and the early church fathers, the apostolic fathers and early church fathers, you'll find out that Christians from the beginning worshiped as the Sabbath, the first day under a new covenant. Fourth commandment, still in effect, but now on the first day. And people want to debate and write books, and I don't want to write a book about it, and I'm not going to debate about it, because honestly, I don't think about it that much. I just simply worship the way the church has always worshiped for 2,000 years. On the first day of the week, the disciples came together. Read it. It's in the book of Acts. In any case, when Jesus comes in, he drives out all of this. And what I've always found interesting was what's contained in the 14th verse. And the blind and the lame came to him. Notice he didn't drive them out. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Now, here is what I want you to see, and I've made mention this to you several times over the years that I've been your pastor. The blind and the lame were there every single week, and they were never healed. And I'll use the word religion in the kind of negative connotation that we usually apply it, which is not a bad word, but I'll apply it the way we usually. Because of their religion and traditions, and now their avarice and their haggling and their disgraceful treatment of the temple of God, these poor people were never attended to. They were never healed. They were never delivered. But as soon as Jesus cleanses the temple, the power of God arrives. Well, I say arrives. It was always there. Now it's let loose. The blind are seeing and the lame are walking. So much so that the chief priest, right after he just did this act of clearing the house, they're complaining about Hosanna. Look, Jesus will tell them at one point, he says, you don't know me and you don't know my father. God the father, God the son. You don't know them. He said, you're of your father, the devil. This is strong language. This is not how you build a church. This is not how you build a church man's way. Amen. But it's how you build a church God's way. And all these years, these people who needed to be healed, they sat there every week. But as the people of God, whether it's Israel or the church, introduce things into the church, whether, again, they're traditions, which, again, I say they're not all bad, but when they countermand the commands of God or they contradict the word of God, the work of God is not done. You could build a huge stadium and be attracting 10, 20, 30,000 people and people in general, including perhaps some of us, say, well, this is success. I had someone say that to me. I won't name the preacher, but basically this individual was looking at me and looking at him. And he says, and it wasn't meant as any kind of a learn a lesson. You look at your church and look at his church. I never bothered answering this individual because... Anybody who thinks like that is not thinking in the word of God or the spirit of God. Basically, he was saying, he's real popular. Who are you? Who are you? Look at your church. Look at his. Well, I've examined this man's doctrine, and I can tell you it's less than desirable, and that's being charitable. It doesn't take much to draw a crowd. It doesn't take much to be popular if you have a little bit of charisma and a little bit of intelligence. But it takes a lot of courage and diligence to preach the word of God God's way. So that God's word comes out God's way. And so let me just say simply, sometimes before we have a front door revival, we need a back door revival. We need key people. And I don't really mean any of you. I'm just, this is theoretical. We need some key people to leave in many of our churches before the blind and the lame and the people who need Christ and so on and so forth can come in the front door and be saved, be healed. Psalm 1 says that the ungodly shall not sit in the congregation of the righteous. So when the word of God is preached, 
clearly and it's preached the way it's written, this is what happens. Some people will only endure it for a little time and then they just fade away. But if you stick with Jesus, signs follow. And the sign is not the greatest. I mean, being healed and delivered is a great thing. But it's pointing to something much greater. That Jesus is Christ. The Christ. He's the Son of God. And I'll repeat myself here. And if I go away, which he did, after they said, save now. And if I go away, I will come again. And when he comes, we won't need to say, save now. Because that will be the moment he's going to end this world's system. You'll never have to read another newspaper, I imagine. You'll never have to visit another hospital. You'll never even have to take an aspirin. There'll be no thieves, no liars. Read the last chapter in the book of the Revelation, chapter 22. There'll be no liars. And though I love my country, I might say, I'm glad. There'll be no politicians. Vote for me and I'll set you free. Because Jesus sets us free. Jesus has set us free. And we'll be in the kingdom. And there, how long does the kingdom last? Forever and ever and ever. I'm discounting the millennium. It's a different subject. Forever and forever. And it never ends. These things are written that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Son of God, and that believing on his name, you may have life, eternal life. Jesus says in John chapter 10, he says, Though a man were dead, if he believe on me, yet shall he live. He, she You know, I will tell you that I will admit at times, I had to remind myself just this week alone of what is written in the first chapter of Joshua, be not discouraged, be not dismayed, be of strong courage, all that. Just like you, sometimes I'm so weary and so tired, even of studying, I'm just tired. And then when you're tired, all these thoughts start to come in. Let me just say this just a little bit. How can you keep teaching Christians that never seem to really learn? They never really seem to overcome. They never seem to have the victory. This is not the way this book is written. And we contend, well, on my level, I contend with a lot. Preachers that are, well, I don't know what they're doing. Church is more like a carnival. And the doctrine is not even doctrine. In any case, we have the truth. It's right here. And it's not always easy. Certainly the carrying of the cross personally is not easy. The narrow way and all of this, loving not the world, all that. That's not all that easy, but it is the way that leads straight to God. So I say to myself sometimes, I'm just really talking, not outwardly talking, but in my head talking. A long time ago, I started with Jesus. I think I'll stick with him. Let everybody else do whatever they're going to do. I have no control over what they do or what they're going to do. I started with Jesus. I think I'll finish with Jesus. Judgment begins at the house of God. That's what we see here in Matthew chapter 21. In 1 Peter chapter 4, listen to this. For the time has come, this is written well after this event. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall be the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? Notice it's not the gospel of John. And John is writing this. Excuse me, Peter is writing this. It's not the gospel of the apostles. The gospel of God. And if, listen, and if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Well, we know. Judgment begins at the house of God. And when God is finished with that, whenever that time comes, 
then it reaches out in very dramatic ways to the world. One thing I want to add before I go through a few verses with you from this chapter 21 of Matthew. Again, setting dates and, you know, doing these very unprofitable and unwise things is not something I've ever done and I don't intend to start. However, with all of that said, the signs that I talked to you about earlier certainly are pointing when I said in my email to you, how much longer can it possibly be? I don't know that answer, but it seems to me that it can't be too far away. Because all these signs that point to the reliability of the scriptures, that they are the truth. Father, sanctify them in thy truth. Thy word is truth. In John 17, 17. And we have that all over the scriptures. Psalm 119, 105, and so on. How much longer can it possibly be? I don't have that answer because I don't know. I just know this is the season. And it's time for us to break up the fallow ground and respond, not just to the communion service, but to respond to what Jesus says. Because his chief complaint, Jesus, against the Pharisees and the scribes was that you say, but you don't do. You read the last chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, and see what the end of that is. Read it for yourself. Be ye doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourself. I don't watch much. In fact, I don't watch any Christian television. I got a Bible. And I don't listen to the Christian radio. Obviously, I'm not against it because I'm on the radio. I just don't have the time. And I really don't have the interest. I got a Bible that has 31,102 verses. And I feel like I'm just starting after all these years. And it's one thing to be deceived by someone standing in a pulpit. It's another thing to deceive yourself. James, again, chapter 1 says, Be ye doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourself. Hey, I went to church today. Hey, it was a great message. And so on. But are you doing what God said to do? That's the question. And so we look at verse 4, and I want to go through a few verses with you. Jesus sends his disciples to go get a colt and a foal. And if we read the parallel accounts, which we're not going to, this is a strange and unusual event when Jesus already says, just it's going to be at a street <clears throat> that meets in two ways. And you'll find a colt there and it's full, tied up. Just take them, which <laughs> that would be stealing here. If I said, just see the Ford Mustang, just take it. Say the pastor wants it. Don't try it. It won't work out as well as it did here for Jesus. But Jesus foresees the fact that this man knows the authority of Christ, of Jesus, and just lets them go. The disciples show up. They start untying another man's animals. He says, what are you doing? He says, the Lord has needed them. He says, okay. So obviously he knew the sovereignty of God or he knew Jesus himself. But look at verse 4. All this was done that it might be fulfilled. That's the key word in that verse, fulfilled. We today, in our generation, are fulfilling Bible prophecy. In fact, somebody just wrote this to me the other day. It had nothing to do with the Bible. It had to just do with time. Wishing me well. Friend of mine, old friend of mine. And he says, boy, time is moving at supersonic speed. This is a statement. And I agree. I said, yes. It's just, it's just going so quickly. And we, in this generation, are fulfilling with rapidity, supersonic speed, the prophecies of the scriptures. And they are signs pointing to something else. 
And again, the question is, what will you do with that sign that points to Jesus Christ? I am the way, the truth, and the life. And whatever else he said, what will you do? You see the signs. The signs are not as important as what they're pointing to. That Jesus Christ is the truth and the whole truth. What will you do? What are you doing? That it might be fulfilled because everything written here in this Old Testament, much of which has already been fulfilled, and yet there's some that has not. And what we have here, there's some that has not, has yet to be fulfilled, and we're fulfilling it. And you can read it in your news today. I was reading it last night. Again, tell the daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh unto thee meek. This is one of the outstanding characteristics of Jesus, his meekness. And it's interesting to me that the people he had the least tolerance for was religious hypocrites. I read a story, and it's a good story, and I'll tell it to you. The theme of it is love, loving people. I don't know that the story is true, but the way it was written, it appeared as a true story. I'm not sure. In any case, <clears throat> there's a man, a young man, who's very bright and gets saved in college. But he's the type, and I'm thinking of the 60s now, maybe, where he's just, all four years, just wearing like t-shirts and jeans and sandals. So obviously it's not New York, it's got to be California or someplace. And that's just the way he dressed. And after he was saved, he decided to visit the church, which was across the street, which was very conservative. Conservative in theology, yes, but also conservative in the way I dress. Men have shirts and ties on, and women, you know. And the church is packed, and he walks in with a t-shirt and jeans which is precisely the way I walked into a church. I have farmer jeans, a t-shirt, and sneakers. Well, he walks in, and he walks into a church that's got a pastor like this, suit and tie. <clears throat> Apparently, the church was so packed, there's no place for him to sit. And he was barefoot to boot. But he decided he wanted to stay for the service. He kept walking down the aisle. Preacher's standing here, of course, he's in plain sight, and just decides to plop down on the floor right there. T-shirt, jeans, no shoes, nothing, barefoot. Everybody else is dressed like me, the man are. There was an old deacon in his 80s in the back. He's got a vest, pocket watch. He starts making his way, he got a cane. Starts making his way down to this young man. Now it's almost causing a scene. It's getting very uncomfortable. Pastor is thinking, I can't even start preaching until we resolve what's going on here. He wasn't disturbing anybody. It was just his appearance and sitting on the carpet. Well, there wasn't any seats, so he sat on the carpet. And the elder went down, deacon. So now everybody's saying, we can't do anything until the deacon takes care of business. And he's walking down. And finally, after what seemed like an eternity, he reaches this young man. And very laboriously, he proceeds to get down and sit next to this young man on the floor. You see, a shirt and tie. A shirt and tie doesn't mean much if you're not truly born again and saved. I have my reasons, and you know my reasons, but I never said that it makes me holy or makes you holy. The old man just sat next to this man, and that's what this is all about. It's about this meekness, this love, this love of the brethren. But I told you that I thought it was ironic that his characteristic, which we know to be meek, his character, God's character, can also be on this side, too, where he's basically throwing everybody out. I'll just simply tell you, that Jesus' way, once again, Jesus' way of building a church is not the way most men today build churches. If you even go back 100 years, let alone two or 300 years, what's the name of the churches? St. John's and St. Joseph's and whatever. What are we today? 
without going through names. Because man's wisdom, and I'm not saying that there was much to say about the church because it was named after some apostle or prophet, but things have changed. And man in his wisdom thinks that this change is helping God. And I'm going to tell you emphatically, God does not need our help. Paul tells Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke. That's God's way. But still, Jesus is meek. And whether a man is 80 years old with a shirt, tie, a vest, a pocket watch, and a cane, he can still sit next to a young man in a t-shirt and jeans and relate to him. Why didn't he get a bunch of tattoos and get his head pierced? I mean, isn't that what's next? You're going to have something piercing both, like Frankenstein, going right through your head? I mean, if I wanted to make a difference, that's what I would do, because everybody else got everything else. He didn't need, and you don't need to do that. If you have the spirit of God, you can relate to people because people haven't changed. And God hasn't changed. And certainly Satan hasn't changed. You can relate to them. You could go into a prison and talk to people. If you have the spirit of God, the real thing, you don't have to put on airs and you don't have to put on pretension. When we look down here and we see Hosanna, I told you the word means, oh, save or save now. And that's what they expected. And I wondered when I was reading this passage, how many times have not only you, but I expected God to save now, and he didn't. And we were disappointed. And we were disappointed not because God disappointed us. We were disappointed because we made the schedule up and God did not comply. That was what happened in the case with Lazarus. Martha is the first one to meet him and says, if you had been here, this would not have happened. But what happened? Well, if he had shown up four days earlier, there would have been a healing. That would have been great. What happened was even greater. Amen. Had Jesus set up his kingdom then and we were still born, assuming everything went the same way it goes now, that would be great. But it's not the way it was done. And I'm going to submit to you that when Christ returns after all these years of all of this evil and sin, it will be even greater when this eastern sky opens up and Christ appears with 10,000s of his saints. Remember, the book is true. And what was fulfilled literally in the past will be fulfilled literally in the future. And you don't even have to go to a Christian preacher, scholar, theologian, or whatever. You can find people out there that are saying, yeah, we're going to be invaded by aliens. Except it's not an alien. It's the creator. It's the one who made the planet. It's the one who made us. The earth is the Lord's and they that dwell therein, the people, everybody, are the sheep of his pasture. It's going to be the creator, not an alien. Behold, he cometh with clouds, a trumpet. (laughs) Even so, come Lord Jesus. Look at that. I pointed this out when we read it. Very great multitude. What would we say? Tens of thousands in front of the donkey, in back of it. Palm branches spread on the ground. See, they expected the king to reign now. And instead, as we know, and we'll celebrate this coming weekend, even his own apostles walked, well, didn't walk away totally, but they're all discouraged because he didn't save now. And worse than that, he's dead. God is dead. That was a movement back in the 60s. God is dead. No, God's not dead. There's a little cute song we used to sing. Some of my kids used to sing it. They even have a recording of my kids when they were little, a couple of them, two of them, and we were singing, God's not dead. He's still alive. Amen. God's not dead. A very great multitude spread their garments in the way, 
People put branches from the trees and straw them in the way, and nothing happened except that he went to a cross, or destroyed part of the temple in a manner of speaking. But on that Sunday, and he didn't show himself alive to everybody, but to a select group. Well, that is our salvation. But I wouldn't be repeat myself, how many times have you been disappointed that we wanted God to save now? And yet he didn't, but he will. And remember this when it comes to prayer. Jesus teaches us a lesson about the widow that went to the judge. And Jesus tells us in the parable that the judge did not have any fear of God and he didn't have any fear of man. Apparently he didn't fear anybody according to the parable. But the only reason that he gave in to this woman is because she kept coming back. She kept coming back. And he says, you know what? I don't fear God. I don't fear people, but she's going to wear me out. What is it you want? And you've got it. And Jesus said, this is to teach, now I'm paraphrasing, this is to teach that men ought always to keep on praying and don't stop. If God doesn't save now because you thought he was going to save now, be patient because God cannot lie. And all that God has said will come to pass as it has in the past. It's coming to pass right now if you have your eyes opened by the Lord. You can see it plainly. Again, just think of this in a few years or maybe a few months. You're going to be watching people do this or this and reading the book of the Revelation and saying, how will now all this continue to progress? That's how I see it. It's a beginning. It's a start. It's nascent. It's beginning. So where are we? <laughs> I'm thinking through my own understanding of end time events. We may be further along than I thought. I want you to notice verse 10 before I wind this down and begin to finish. When he was coming to Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? Yet there's a great multitude saying, This is the son of David. I told you before, nothing has changed. Ecclesiastes, nothing new under the sun. That's not completely accurate for this generation, because there's two things that are new. World population, 8 billion, shade under, maybe it was shade more, and technology. So much so that the technologists are saying, We've got to put a stop to this at least temporarily, it's out of control. What they don't know, it's always been out of their control. <laughs> See, they thought because of artificial intelligence, they finally had a revelation, it's out of control. It's always been out of our complete control because of the sovereignty and providence of God who's guiding his own creation to his desired end. And for us who are saved, it's a good end. Yeah. Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans, it goes for Israel, but it applies to us. I know the plans that I have for you, plans of good. And then this came to me also, for me personally, but I'm sharing it with you, at no extra cost. And I mean that. I'm not charging you any more than I usually charge you. When you see all these things, he says, come to pass. Now, again, I'm collating verses and paraphrasing for you. Let not your heart be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled, because we're sheep. I don't know of anybody, maybe you do, you tell me after the service. I don't know of anyone that said... Honey, we need an attack sheep for our house. The sheep are spooked easily, and they have a lot of qualities that you don't want as far as, uh, you know, beware of attack sheep. And so we all, like sheep, have gone astray, and Jesus has to tell us. Now, when you see these signs, and they're going to be imposing, and they're going to be fearsome, make sure your heart is not troubled. And I am so grateful for the Holy Spirit. I really am. I mean, I'm really grateful that verses can come into my mind without having to have a Bible in my hand when I'm just walking up the stairs to the bedroom and hearing the voice of the Lord from the scriptures saying, 
Make sure your heart is not troubled. Make sure you're not fearful. Or for me personally, Joshua chapter 1, don't be discouraged. Don't be dismayed. So inside, I said to myself, I will not be discouraged. I will not be dismayed. Whatever my post is, which is basically this is it, I will stay at my post until I am properly relieved, which unfortunately may mean my death, but he must have loved you. Hey, I'm your gift. I always remember that. You can judge how much God loves you. By saying, that's our gift. Choice is yours. <laughs> I'm still going to be me. Let me end on this here. The multitudes that went before and behind are crying, this is the son of David. This is the king. And the people in Jerusalem saying, who is this? And this is what we have today. We know who he is. And there's people watching. I've had a few occasionally write to me. They don't know who he is. They don't know who Jesus is. I remember singing a song back in the day, my first pastorate in the Bronx. And we used to sing this song, everybody ought to know. Everybody ought to know. Everybody ought to know who Jesus is. He's the lily of the valley. It was a great song. It's a great song. Who is this? They have been saying that from this time to this time now that we live in. Who is this? And when the skies break open, the Bible indicates that they'll still be saying, who is this? But then they're going to say, hide us. Hide us. Let the mountains fall on us. Let the rocks fall on us. Let them cover us. And let me tell you that the preacher's obligation is to preach the word, not a motivational speech saying this is going to be the best day of your life. I have no clue if today is going to be the best day of your life. But I do know Jesus. And I do know what his word says. And I do know that he's coming again. And that's what the Bible calls the blessed hope. That's our hope. Not the next presidential election. Not somebody else to come and rule the world. Our hope is in Jesus. And people will still say at that point, who is it? But hide us from him. We don't want to see his face. So you and I, we have a choice. This is the privilege that God has given to us to create a creature that can have fellowship with God because we're made in his image. And in part, we have what I've always called limited sovereignty. I mean, I could do bad. I could do good. I can reject the grace of God. I can accept it. Obviously, not all Christians believe that. They just believe God pushes a button, you're saved. Whether you like it or not, you're saved. And whether you like it or not, you're not saved. I will not subscribe to that. I cannot subscribe to that. It's not only unbiblical, it's just unreasonable. It makes God the author of sin. But we have a choice. I made my choice a long time ago. And I don't want to go back to Egypt. And I don't want an idol to worship. I don't have too many heroes beyond Jesus. There are people I admire. My Savior is Jesus Christ. Amen. This is just a theme almost running through my mind since we sang the song. We respond to your invitation. Come, he says, all ye that thirst. It's an invitation. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Amen. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. A great verse. And many, many like it. That's your choice. I think I know which one you've made. But why don't we go to prayer just to make sure so I'm not presumptuous. Save now. The next time we see him, we'll be able to say that. And he will. Save now. Father, we come to you today on this Palm Sunday, this 
triumphal entry, this event that was so precise mentioned in the book of Daniel that men to this day say that Daniel wasn't written by Daniel and it wasn't written in the era that he said just because the prophecies are so precise. You came in to Jerusalem on the exact day prophesied by Daniel. The longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of the truth of your Bible, your word. It will all come to pass. But we have a choice. And today, Lord, I just pray for those who are sitting here listening, those that are watching by the live stream, and those listening by way of radio, who have already chosen Jesus and accepted his invitation and accepted his grace, that they would continue in it and be steadfast unto the end. Steadfast, right to the end. Pour out your grace Give more grace, God. We're surrounded by so much temptation, so many obstacles, so many problems. But you said, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, but I go to prepare a place for you. Oh, we bless you today, oh God. God's invitation, Christ's invitation to you today is you're thirsty, come to me. You labor, come to me. Uh, all, you know, I'm the bread of the life. I'm the light of the world and all this. The invitation, you respond to it or you don't. I pray God for grace that people would respond. Not just here, but all over the world. As we're being watched by many nations now, pour out your grace, God, that we may know you and the power of your resurrection. We give you all the praise. We give you all the glory. We give you all the honor. And I want to say this, if you've not yet received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, today, the Bible says, today is the day of salvation. Today, not tomorrow, today. Ask him into your heart. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Open your life. Receive Christ. Father, we bless you and praise you again on this Palm Sunday. Remind us throughout the week, especially when we're alone and we don't have other brothers, sisters around us, to remind us, encourage us. Let us pray for one another. And help us to love you with all of the heart, all of the soul, all of the mind, and all of the strength. And then also, God, remind us to love one another. We will give you all the praise, all the glory, and all the honor. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.